Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Fighting the vaccine over the past year has been a huge logistical challenge from delivering tests and effectively testing millions to flipping how hospitals serve patients with finding a vaccine and getting the vaccine on the streets and right down into our own homes, figuring out schedules and who's going to help Jimmy with his science homework. In the studio with us today, we have someone who knows about logistics. We are honored to have Dr. William Winkenwerder with us. Dr. Winkenwerder was Assistant Secretary of Defense, Health Affairs, where he led health systems for all the armed forces under President George W. Bush. Before and after his government role, Dr. Winkenwerder's experience was in the private sector. He served as CEO of Highmark Health and has served as a chair and a board member on many companies and organizations, mostly in healthcare. As such, he is the perfect guest to ask about our current point in history where the healthcare industry appears to be coming out of a pandemic and into a new normal. We're going to ask Dr. William Winkenwerder different versions of the same question. What comes next? Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. My day job is Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments, Z-E-L-I-S. Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. I also serve as the Communication Committee Chair for WEDI. That's W-E-D-I. WEDI is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. And again, in our virtual studio today, Dr. William Winkenwerder. Dr. Winkenwerder, happy to have you on our show. Matthew, great to be with you. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Good. I'm excited uh, to have you. I've got lots of questions for you, but let's start uh, with your experience. Uh, 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 you're both coming from the government and the private sector. Um, when you were, uh, you know, a wee one, 12 years old, or when you're in college, is, it, is this what you wanted to be when you grew up? I had no idea that I would be doing what I'm doing now or what I've been doing for the last 20 to 30 years. My interest in healthcare started fairly early, however. As a young boy, uh, I was an athlete. I played a lot of sports. I ended up getting injured and into Mm -hmm. the office of the orthopedic surgeon. Uh, And so I, you know, sort of took an interest in, in orthopedics and in medicine because it seemed like it would be a great thing to do, you know, be able to take care of somebody, learn about science, which I was interested in, learn about the human body, uh, and at that time, also be your own boss, you know, that changed yes. for sure. But uh, it, it did lead me to an interest to explore uh, pre-medical studies in college, along with playing football, which was a primary focus at that time. And uh, and then from there, lots of, you know, sort of turns in the road. Uh, but I've always been sort of led by my curiosity and my interest um, in how to best make an impact. And that, that certainly had a lot to do with my decision to uh, serve in the public sector, just public service twice early and once early in my career for a couple of years at the what we now call CMS. It used to be called Healthcare Financing Administration. And then sort of mid-career, uh, when I joined the Department of Defense in 2001, right after 9-11, and served for six years there. 
So, and uh, as you point out, though, I serve both in the public sector and the private sector. And in that respect, I think been able to see a lot of different things and things that work and things that don't work. Um, and obviously uh, uh, be on the, on the riddle, so to speak, as to getting things done and moving the healthcare system forward. So uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. And uh, I've been a long time uh, a supporter of Weedy and uh, the role that Weedy has played going back now in a number of years to promote healthcare information technology and interoperability and you know, the things that we care about. Uh, Weedy was for the things that we're all for today before many other people were for them. So, <laughs> Weedy yeah. was cool before. Ever had a time. Absolutely. Yeah. Very good. I think one of the things that Weedy does, and this is reflected in your experience as well, is that uh, coordination between the government sector and the private sector and, and getting those two points of view together. And certainly you bring that point of view together. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if uh, the listeners saw that you published an article in Forbes uh, a couple of months ago, um, early on in the year. And the the main theme of the, the article was that, you know, the, the 100 million vaccines that, that uh, the president had promised to get out might have been underestimated what could actually be possible. Um, and, and certainly we've cleared the 100 million, but it does feel like this finally, and again, this is a fantastic coordination between commercial and, and public to, to get the vaccines out there and to start things moving. But it feels like these the final like hundred last hundred million might be the toughest uh, to get vaccinated. There seems to be a lot of cultural and so, social reasons why people are not taking the vaccines. Do you, do you have any uh, suggestions or, or or view on on how you might get that cross the far finish line on that? Yeah, boy, thank you for asking that. That's that's just. Uh an issue that's been on my mind a lot lately. Uh, we came out um, with a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm about getting people vaccinated. A lot of people, especially older people, were desperate to get vaccinated and were, you know, jamming the phone lines, uh, going as soon as they could, and they got vaccinated. So all good. We're, we're in pretty good shape with, with the people over 70. Uh, over 65, over 70 years old in terms of percentage of people have been vaccinated. However, we're now into that, as they call it, I don't know if I'd call it the last mile, but we're, we're into that last few miles of, of trying to get uh, the entire population uh, vaccinated, or at least as high a number as possible. And yes, I do have some ideas. I, I would like to see more uh, just promotion of the benefits of the vaccine combined with facts mm. and evidence. Yes, there are, is a small risk of adverse events with any vaccination, certainly with these vaccinations, probably a little bit more with the J&J &J vaccine than the Pfizer and Moderna. But even with J&J, &J, it, it, it appears that uh, it's still a pretty rare event to have a clotting episode. But to be clear, uh, there are a, a small number of people relative to the number that have been vaccinated who've had a clotting uh, episode, that, and in a couple of cases, it, uh, it may have caused de a death. And, and so that's not good. We, we want to avoid that. But it looks like, my read, looks like that this risk is primarily around women under the age of 50. 
So would I, you know, just personally, would I recommend if only a J&J vaccine was, uh, well, I'd say if there was other choices, would I recommend for a woman under 50 to get the J&J? No, I'd say go get Moderna or, or Pfizer or maybe one of the other ones that will be coming out soon. But uh, for the rest of the population, maybe younger younger people under 21 or older people, you know, of either uh, gender, uh, it, it, that that would be fine with that. But so we've got enough vaccine now. The, the challenge is not sufficient amounts of vaccine. The challenge is convincing uh, groups, and it's really subgroups of people uh, that are suspect of whether the vaccine is safe or whether it really works or whether they really need to take it. And that that requires a really uh, focused communications campaign, not broad, but actually targeted, mm. targeted towards certain groups. So, for example, uh, there, there's a slower, lower uptake among minorities, especially African-Americans. And so we need more of a targeted outreach, I would say, with people who connect with uh, that community, a part of the community, you know, a trusted voice. And at the same time, it appears that there are potentially in rural areas or other people who are maybe a little bit more conservative and suspect to the government on Mm -hmm. that end are also, you know, reelected. And so we've got different groups uh, that, that we need to re- reach out to, probably some young people who feel like they're invulnerable and all the information has been, you know, if you're young, you don't have to worry, so don't take it. But um, I have a son who's 29 years old, and I urge that he take it. He's taken the vaccine. He was able to get it where he lived in New York. And I would urge all, all young people uh, to get vaccinated unless there's, you know, obviously can, if you have a question or concern, consult with your physician, but, uh, you know, go out and, and, and get vaccinated. And I think you'll be, uh, you know, on the better side of probability for bad outcome, uh, if you have, if you've been vaccinated. And I think that's, that's an, you bring up an interesting point too. I think we're beyond the, you know, the bumper sticker, go get vaccinated. It's yes. like we have to go a little bit deeper and answer the specific questions that specific groups have, right? So you think about minorities, they have a historic distrust in, in med- medical science, and not medical science, but in American medicine, and, and for yeah. good reason, given the history, right? And then perhaps the, the political viewpoint's a little bit different. So I think that's an excellent point. Yes. And, and so it, it requires that kind of outreach. At the same time, I would like to see, you know, in certain states, uh, whether it's governors or mayors or heads of hospital or health systems, you know, get out there and promote, whether it's at, uh, you know, the Rotary Club or uh, whatever, community groups uh, to get, get people uh, vaccinated, because I do think all of that uh, makes a difference. Now, there's another factor, of course, just today, the news is out that the CDC has said that uh, if you're vaccinated, you know, fully vaccinated, that you no longer need to wear a mask either outside or inside. Hmm. So my uh, suspicion is that that will lead to an interest to people getting vaccinated so they can be in, you know, be in the workplace, not have to worry if they're in the workplace, 
There may be employers who say, we want you back, but wouldn't it be great if, you know, you had a vaccine? Uh, right now, there's uh, not a lot out there and, and maybe won't be for, for, for a while that would be a mandate. Uh, because, and part of this relates to the, the status of the vaccine under the FDA is what's called emergency use authorization, EUA, which means that it's not a final approval. And when, you, when a drug or a vaccine or something is in that EUA status, uh, typically you've not been able to, say, force people to say, you, you must take this because it's still in this, you know, status. Now, We've certainly had a lot of experience already, over 265 million vaccinations given. So I'm wondering, because um, I don't have an inside line on this uh, of information, and wondering, you know, when is the FDA going to come forward and say, you know, it's it's approved? So yeah. we'll we'll see. Uh, that may make a little bit of difference, but uh, obviously there are different groups. Universities, in some cases, are signaling that they will want to require some schools, you know, teacher. We'll, we'll see how it all shakes out. But hopefully more people will get vaccinated such that the overall rate uh, or the percent relative to the total population is at least 70%, if not 75 or ideally if, if we could get to 80, that would be great. Now, there's one other factor I'll just bring up in terms of getting to the immunity that we need in the population. And that is, uh, we've already had documented about 33 million people who've had an infection. The estimates are that the actual number, because of the, all the asymptomatic infection that happened, where people never even went and got, they never knew they had anything, so they didn't get tested. Mm-hmm. So the real number may be closer to twice the 33 million or 66 million, which when you do the math, represents about 20% of the U.S. population. So if you add 20% that already have immunity due to a prior infection with about 70 or 75% of people, obviously some overlap there, of people who got the vaccine, then you're really up there, you know, pushing 90, 95% of people with immunity. That should have, that would have a tremendous dampening effect on any kind of transmission. And we should be able to get to very low numbers if we can do these things. So mm-hmm. that, that's kind of where we are right now. So you brought an, an interesting point. Um, and you serve, I know, on quite a few boards of private companies, of schools. Um, so what's going on in the boardrooms with the discussions of, of the vaccines? Are they are they waiting for that FDA approval and then maybe some new policies pop up? Are they waiting for OSHA uh, standard that we've been waiting for a couple right. months for? Uh, what's what's the discussion like in those boardrooms? Well, it, the discussion has been around COVID all year long, or you know, last fifteen months. And every every company that I work with uh, basically has had a work from home policy that that uh, affected or um, uh, enabled um, a large segment of the workforce to work from from home. Uh, Obviously, if it's a healthcare provider, one of the companies I work with is in the business of physical therapy. You you can't, by and large, do physical therapy remotely. You actually have to be there taking care of uh, of the patients. But that particular company, for example, is very aggressive in encouraging 
its workforce to get vaccinated. So they, many of them, or most of them, are vaccinated up. Um, but the the issue is 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 out there. I think I'll say this: every company I'm working with has a strong desire to be able to get back to the office, so to speak. Not necessarily full time, but but partial to be determined. You know whether it's twenty percent, thirty percent, fifty percent, sixty percent. Who knows what where it settles out? It may depend upon the business, the kind of business. But people have a need to get together uh, and to be face to face. In fact, uh, one of the companies I work with uh, just this week, we had our first board meeting in fifteen months in person. Wow. Everybody was vaccinated up. It was very, you know, it was it was great. Uh, people, you need that human connection, and uh, we we really benefited from that. I I saw things happen at that meeting that I don't, you know, honestly, I don't. I'm not sure they would have happened if it had been a remote meeting. Uh, right. it was just a quality to the communication and to uh, you know the support to the management team, et cetera, that would be hard to deliver if it was on Zoom. Right. It seems like you need that body language for, especially for difficult conversations, yeah. right? And people actually, you know, do want to give a fist bump or a handshake or a hug or something, you know? And, uh, and if so everyone's th- vaccinated, they can feel, you know, really pretty totally safe to do that. So do you think the handshake's coming back? <laughs> I wasn't happy when my friend, Dr. Fauci, said that it would be okay. I don't know what he was thinking. Be okay if and we didn't have handshake. I think the human beings need handshakes. And, uh, you know, I, I'm fine. We're, you know, fist, fist uh, elbow bump, whatever. Yeah, but something, you know, yeah, uh, handshake is good. You know, everybody can also carry their, still carry their uh, uh, disinfectant around and, and wash their hands, you know, five times a day. Uh, but that probably doesn't hurt to do that anyways. That's right. That's right. Thank you, Dr. Winkenwerder. Uh, when we come back, we can continue our discussion with Dr. Winkenwerder. I'd like to ask him uh, more about the mental health challenges, which seem to be on the rise as a, as a, as a consequence of uh, COVID-19 and where he sees healthcare going in the next couple of years. For now, let's take a quick break and hear from our producer, Michael McNutt. The preeminent National Membership Association for Health IT Guidance and Collaboration Weedy has earned the title of being an instrumental force in engaging public and private partnerships, facilitating discussions, and providing a collaborative voice as a national healthcare advisor to provide meaningful changes for the American healthcare system. Become a member and provide national leadership that enhances the exchange of clinical and administrative healthcare information. Join one of our various work groups where Weedy members collect input, exchange ideas, and make recommendations that inspire impactful and far-reaching change in our industry. Learn more about how you can make a difference at Weedy.org. We're back and we're talking with Dr. Winkenwerder, former Assistant Secretary of Defense Health Affairs. So, uh, again, Dr. Wiegenwerder, I keep bringing this up, but you've been on both uh, the commercial side, boards, uh, uh, other organizations, and on the government side. So what is the role, in, in either in terms of the pandemic or what we have in front of us, this next phase of healthcare, what is the role of the government and, and the private sector? Like, what, what is each one of their jobs? How do they work together best? 
they they work to be, together best when there's good communication and there's good and clear understanding of, of what those roles are and how each can support the other. Obviously, government funds a large portion of healthcare in the United States today, over over 50%, probably approaching 60%. If you combine, you know, the funds that go to Medicare, Medicaid, Veterans Affairs, Department of Defense, and then a variety of programs that occur at the state level or things like federally qualified health plans. And obviously, a lot of the research is federally funded. So the, the role of the federal government is huge in terms of uh, directing the, the, the direction of the healthcare system because you get what you pay for, right? And, uh, and, and the government, I think, is very sensitive to and um, aware of the way in which those dollars are spent affects the way that healthcare is delivered and the way that uh, you know the policies unfold. So, on the on the other hand, on the private sector, um, you know, many private sector um, companies are uh, certainly have to respond to all the regulation requirements uh, and so forth. That that goes with the territory. But I have found that you know the some not all the, not all of the innovation, but most of the innovation occurs in the private sector. I mean, we've got some creative scientists that that work, you know, at the National Institutes of Health or that work at the Department of Defense or at the VA or whatever. You know, I'm just talking just healthcare now, and so uh, that many you know great people and great work. But the bulk of, of the innovation and discovery is in the private sector. And where it really comes together well, I think there is no better example than what happened with the development of the COVID vaccines. It, it, what happened, and, and it's not fully appreciated yet, but that was a, a really a, a, a true, almost miracle. I mean, what to, to go from... Uh, all of us being affected by this worldwide pandemic and within 30 days, uh, the researchers were already getting the uh, genetic code of the virus and starting to work on on a, a vaccine to, to, to all the trials and, and multiple different companies, right? Uh, to getting a vaccine out and ready for use in inside of 10 months is unheard of, just unheard of. Now, th that didn't just happen. I think it happened because there was leadership that was really pressing things forward. There was the military was involved. And as a matter of fact, I was just in an award ceremony last week where the general Gustav Perna, a four-star general, uh, according to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he is the best log logistician yeah, uh, in the history of the U.S. Army, I mean, that's <laughs> something. But he really sang General Perna's uh, praises and just let us all know that the country was really lucky to to have somebody of that skill and talent who dropped all of his military duties and was assigned to this project, Project Warp Speed, 
And so the vaccines and the trials and so forth were being done here over the private sector, but there was a lot of logistical support that needed to happen to get all of that distributed and to make it happen. Yes, it didn't come out zooming out in the first two weeks, but within 30 to 45 days, things were on a, again, remarkable, pretty smooth path of getting this distributed. And so, so that, that to me is one of the best examples. I think what we did, I'll go to COVID again, with the, with the relief that the government came through, and again, the military was involved in this, uh, was supporting New York and supporting some of the other areas that needed additional resources was, was truly wonderful. And that's where I've seen the best of the private sector and the public sector coming together. Uh, now, the, the public sector has got an ongoing set of duties and responsibilities. They don't they're not just the emergency 911, but what they do have is capacity that can be, you know, adjusted and deployed and plussed up into certain areas of the country. Uh, and then the last thing I'll touch on that I think is uh, going to be really important going forward, and it was important with COVID, is this presence of an ongoing, and the term we used in the government was warm base of research uh, and funding for not just the research, but for uh, a mechanism to procure, to, to buy and store and be prepared to distribute certain kinds of medical materials and supplies. We had nothing like that prior to 9-11. And then after 9-11, and especially after the anthrax attacks, uh, there were some of us uh, at the Department of Defense, I was very involved with the Department of Health and Human Services under then Secretary uh, Tommy Thompson in the White House uh, to conceptualize a new agency called the Biological Advanced Research Defense Agency. And that, that, that was funded uh, and the purpose was to identify vulnerabilities public health vulnerabilities and to begin to make sure that we do the research and to have the mechanisms in place so that there could be a quick ramp up to, to buy materials and to buy um, vaccines or drugs or what have you. Now, uh, that's the good news. The bad news was uh, over a period of about 10 years following that, uh, the funding was uh, sort of went down. People thought, well, this is not a big risk anymore. You know, we don't have to worry about terrorist attack, et cetera. Wrong. Mm. Uh, we, it, this all, all needs to be funded in the same way that we fund on a national security basis, things like aircraft carriers and ships and planes. And, you know, it's, imp I mean, it's, a, it's as important, if not more important, than all of those hard military assets. You look how many people we lost because of COVID. So, and the final thought, not necessarily a positive one, but I'll, I'll, in good candor, I'll leave it with everybody on this topic, is that COVID may not be the last of what we see uh, with uh, either a virus or some kind of infection uh, that has pandemic potential. And it's uh, it's for a number of reasons. There's research that goes on, you know, that, that can create a risk for spread if something gets outside of the lab. There's that issue. 
But there's the fact that the world is so interconnected and that people move from one part of the world to the other in hours. And so if somebody's carrying something, it doesn't take very long to get it to another place. So we, we're not like we were even 40 or 50 years ago. We're not walled off from the spread of disease on a global basis. And that's uh, that's uh, so we had to really have that top of mind and ensure that our supply chain uh, of materials and vaccines and drugs and PPE and all of that kind of stuff is such that we can we can we can ramp up really quickly or we have sufficient stockpiles that we can respond to these situations. That's really critical. Right. Right. And independent uh, with our own stockpiles. Right. Not scrambling yeah. around at the last minute seeing if China's got extra masks or whatever that, we've got to do. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, on a national security basis, you we would not rely on any other country, let's say, for our military equipment. Right. Right. So uh, th this uh, medical material is just as important, just as critical. And uh, you don't like to think that another country would sort of hold that kind of um, capacity or capability over the heads of you know the people of the United States. But you you can't assume that uh, that they wouldn't. Uh, right. And so you've got to, you know, you got to be prepared. Right, right. They've got their own people. It's almost like a, an insurance uh, policy, right? You know that as soon as you spend some money on an insurance policy, you've almost guaranteed that it won't happen. So <laughs> it's better to buy that insurance policy, get ready for the next time, right? And Absolutely. hope it doesn't happen. Yeah. So we hope pandemics are not as predictable and, 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 and recurrent as, let's say, hurricanes. But uh, when they come, uh, you know, they're ter I mean, we've learned they're terribly uh, devastating. And so it's worth, and I would say, you know, it, it's not necessary. We can't assume it's a one in a hundred year thing anymore. Right. Uh, we, it, we have to assume that it could be a one in 10 year or one in 20 year or one in 30. I mean, whatever it is, it's often enough that we should, you know, and it's devastating enough potentially that we, we need to be prepared. And, and, you know, talking about the pandemic, we're, we're, we haven't cleared the rubble yet. And I think we're still finding, you know, the consequences of the pandemic that we still haven't dealt or we're just discovering. I think one of these things is mental health. A study just came out yes, last week, I believe, uh, where a third of those who suffered from COVID-19 are, are six months later suffering from a psychiatric issue or a mental health issue. That seems like a, a challenge going forward in terms of what's next for healthcare. care. Uh, yes. What are your thoughts on that? Totally agree with that. And I have recently joined and uh, have become part of a group uh, called the Patient Care Alliance for Long COVID. Uh, that group mm. is led by former Health and Human Services Secretary Mike Levitt, Michael Levitt, uh, as well as um, uh, uh, the former White House uh, healthcare advisor for President Obama. And so it's a bipartisan effort, and uh, there are a number of us who've had both private sector and public sector experience who are, have come together to try to facilitate and promote the sharing of information uh, about these long, so-called long COVID um, patients. And uh, first of all, to get a, a database on 
you know, the magnitude and scope and uh, uh, nature of the problem, but also to um, better understand how to care for people like that and what we can do to advance treatments and care and what we can do to um, ensure that the policy, including payment, is, is, is there for caring, caring for these people. There's some pretty concerning, actually, studies, you kind of referenced them, uh, suggesting that for quite a number of people, there are some longer-term, whether it's mental or neurological uh, you know, impact. And uh, we hope, you know, that uh, as this plays out, that these are symptoms, if they do go beyond a few weeks, they only go a few months and, and are not, you know, long-term uh, deleterious effects, but we don't know enough right now to conclude that. But we certainly need to learn more, and uh, there could be treatments that could be very helpful. There are some studies that suggest that those who have been vaccinated, uh, who have these symptoms, that it, it may significantly diminish, if not uh, take away, the symptoms that they had. Mm. From. So. So there's things going on with our immune system um, that, uh, you know, may, may give an opening, an opportunity uh, for, for, for better treatment uh, with either a drug or, you know, um, a vaccine even that, that could help these, these patients. Right, right. It sounds like we have to get our arms around the problem first to see how big it is. I think the policy is very interesting because, uh, you know, uh, I know the where, where there's a lot of mental health parity in terms of benefits, uh, but it's certainly something that um, I think insurers and carriers and, and employers all need to kind of start thinking about if, depending on the size of the situation. Right? So, yes, absolutely. But so, thank you for bringing that up because it's really important. And I think it's probably, you know, actually, let's let's go to this. So. Where do you see healthcare coming out of a pandemic? Learn some lessons. Uh, probably some other lessons we still have to learn. Where do you where do you see healthcare, or maybe where do you where do you hope that healthcare will be in this country in five or ten years? Yeah. What's the where do you think we'll be? Um, well, I'm not going to say I know where we'll be. Uh, it uh, it continues to surprise, but I'll I'll I will talk about where I would like us to be. And, uh, and just kind of touch on three or four key points. One is um, that we would have better data, better information, uh, better sharing and use of information um, that, that allows for, you know, better, more efficient, more um, impactful care uh, and prevention. So that's, that's one. Second is that that there would be um, there is a little bit of a movement, but there would be even more of a movement to think about healthcare more as a set of activities, not just to treat people when they when they're sick or ill, but to um, prevent. Uh, and I don't mean even in the classical prevention mode, but I mean to, to teach people and to help them learn and understand how they can themselves be much healthier. So, for example, in the area of, of uh, the, the, the downstream consequences of obesity, 
you've got heart disease, you've got uh, diabetes, you've got uh, arthritis, you've got fatty liver, you've got all these problems. And uh, yes, it's great that we, we have treatments for all of these, but they kind of just, you know, sort of mitigate a lot of the symptoms. I would rather have more investment and impact to, uh, you know, better educate people because so many of these things are, are truly preventable. Uh, obviously, there's always some risk of a bad something happening to any of us, accident or even, you know, an illness that's not preventable. But so much is preventable uh, through lifestyle. Um, and uh, so that's one piece. The, the, the next piece relates to the mental health. And, and on that front, you know, uh, we've developed such a, uh, you know, terrible problem with the use of opioids and, and drugs and other things. People, you know, trying to relieve the pain of life, uh, if not the, you know, pain they feel in, in their in their whatever arms or legs or joints or. But uh, there's, you know. Uh, a lot that we need to do there to try to bolster um, caring and concern, you know, within families, around families, you know, to help help people make it through life with without so much suffering, you know. And uh, so the Internet and technology is both potentially and is helpful in that regard. But it can also be, you know, a source of making people very unhappy. Or, <laughs> That's right. You know, so it's a double-edged sword. But um, those are some of the things I'd like to see. And, uh, you know, the medical profession moves on and changes. We're obviously much more diverse than it was when I entered medicine. I think that's good that it is. Uh, but we need to keep focused on you know, treating each, in my opinion, treating each person individually and respectfully and, uh, you know, um, meeting, meeting everybody where they are, you know, and, and helping them, uh, get through life. It's kind of the old rule of, uh, being a great primary care medicine. That was my specialty. That's what I enjoyed was just taking care of, you know, people who had a broad range of problems, and working with them both on a medical uh, sense, but also on a you know in an interpersonal relationship. So I think all those things are important. Technology, uh, telemedicine, uh, you know, contacting people with texts and so forth—the way we can do today—I think can be really additive and helpful to all of that. So um, I'd love to see much more of, the, of all of those things I just said. And obviously, if we could do it uh, in a way that uh, we do it more efficiently uh, without wasting money, because we still do waste quite a lot of money. And uh, obviously, the biggest wastage is, is, is people who live very unhealthy lifestyles. If we could change that, we'd have more than enough money to, to do whatever we wanted, because that is a very expensive um you know, th those behaviors end up costing a, a ton of money. 
Right, right. And it sounds like we've come full circle there, too, because uh, our first uh, discussion uh, today was uh, meeting people where they were in terms of the vaccine, right? So yes. looking at populations but, and working yes. on education. And it also sounds like you uh, want to somewhat redefine how we think about healthcare in this country, right? As, as yes. opposed to uh, the, the, uh, a function of duct taping what's gone wrong uh, yeah. to taking care of the car before it breaks down, right? So, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and I think we're in, in some ways we're getting there a little bit. Uh, there are a lot more people that talk about, you know, keeping people well and getting them uh, on a, off to a healthy start in life. All, all of those kinds of things, there's more awareness that that makes a difference today. And, um, so we just have to keep keep focused on that. And I'm in particular, again, I'll turn back to the food issue, uh, the food and eating healthy food and uh, staying um, on uh, uh, plant, plant-based diet. Uh, you know, there's ton of evidence that people live healthier lives if they're doing, eating more fruits and vegetables than if they're eating a lot of meat and, and, and processed food and, and, uh, sugar, high sugar content food. And, you know, we tend to think sometimes, I know when you're young, you think this way, you know, I can eat, you know, I'm active, I'm busy, you know, I can eat whatever I want. It doesn't matter. Well, that may be true for a couple of years, but if you keep that up, you're going to kill yourself. It's <laughs> so death and it's not good. So may as well get into a habit of, of, uh, you know, doing things the right way. And the thing is, it doesn't have to feel that, you know, punitive or, you know, like restrictive. I mean, there's, there's great stuff that you can eat and, and exercise is fun and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. Veggie burgers are starting to taste better. So. Exactly. <laughs> There'll be a lot more of those sold. You can, <laughs> you can, you can count on that. Very good, Dr. Vinkenberger. This has been a terrific conversation. Uh, appreciate having you on the show today. Um, before we leave, any resources or books or things you might refer uh, yeah. listeners to? Mm. Boy, that's a good question. It depends. If you, I mean, obviously, if you're uh, if you're a clinician of some sort, uh, whether you're a doctor, nurse, a physical therapist, or a, a technician or a researcher. Uh, most people in the field kind of have a pretty good idea of where to go for, for information and resource. Um, beyond that, I think, you know, honestly, uh, some of the pages of major news publications are not a bad place. There's, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal and other mainline uh, publications just get in on, on the internet and Google it, you know, and uh, I think you can get smart, you know, if you're focused and uh, uh, a learner uh, on, on learning things. Uh, and then in your community, again, it, it depends and it uh, depends on where you, where you are, but there's there's a lot of information today about health and healthcare that, I mean, again, I look back over my career uh, all of the all of the information that's out there today was, well, number one, there's much more of it today than there was 30 or 40 years ago. But going back to that time, uh, all the information was just in the purview of the doctor. Mm-hmm. I mean, the doctor was really the only one who, who, who knew anything. I mean, you just didn't have access to that information. 
So it's out there and available. You just have to get educated and uh, it, make it a life's priority to know more about yourself, your body, um, how, to, how to live a healthy lifestyle. And, and I think there are more and more groups that are out there promoting that. And, and that has the, uh, the opportunity to have a, a, a huge benefit for the overall healthiness of our population. Very good. Well, thank you, Dr. Winkenberger. We, we appreciate your time today. Appreciate this whole conversation. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you very much. Have a great day. All right. That was Dr. Uh, Winkenberger, the former Assistant Secretary of Defense Health Affairs. And this has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. You can find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe.